Happy Tuesday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Rocketeer Minute where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest adventure movie Walt Disney's ever made, the 1991 Joe Johnston-directed feature, The Rocketeer. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Hal Bryan, an airplane nerd from the Experimental Aircraft Association here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And Jim, what a great guest we have today. This uh, this guest is the brains behind a terrific website, one that I've known for years and years, airships.net. And he's also uh, an author of a new book that came out uh, in May called Zeppelin Hindenburg, an illustrated history of LZ-129. And uh, I uh, I have a long life, uh, lifelong rather fascination with airships. But uh, but I don't pretend to know anything when Dan Grossman is in the room. So, Dan, welcome. Well, thank you very much. What a pleasure to be talking about airships. Uh, it's definitely this is our our week for zeppelins, and uh, you're just the man just the man for the job. Um, we've been uh, watching this uh, this fight developing between uh, uh, Neville and Clifford, and uh, <laughs> anybody that gets in his way, including the uh, the pilot, who I guess he's just lightened the load by about. Uh, 80 or 90 kilos by sending him sending him out the uh, the hatch there and now he's uh, threatening Jenny but that's not important right now let's uh, <laughs> let's talk about uh, <laughs> let's talk about the Luxembourg here which I guess we're we're assuming is like a sister ship a would-be sister ship of the Hindenburg uh, how close is that uh, uh, control cabin there uh, s- similar to to the Hindenburg itself it's reasonably close certainly good enough for uh, literary license um They've taken a little license, uh, but it kind of gives the basic idea. It was a it was a bare uh, functional area. It wasn't really decorated. It was exposed uh, duralium and girders and controls. Uh, there's a spiral staircase, which is a, which is a bit of a poetic license. Um, there was actually just a, a straight little uh, aluminum ladder, but it gives the sense of being in a control area that was built for function, not for for, for decorative purposes. Yeah, it's a uh... It, it, it seems like uh, now when when you were when they were on duty, what was the typical cockpit crew composed of? How many people were were up there while while the ship was in flight? Uh, there was a helmsman who controlled the rudder. That's a lateral movement, left right. There was probably the most important crewman was the elevator man. He controlled the elevators, which uh, handled pitch up and down, and he faced sideways uh, to be oriented with the axis that he was controlling, and he had a board that showed all sorts of information that he needed uh, in order to control the pitch uh, and the altitude of the ship. There usually was a senior officer who was in command. There was a ballast board, which generally wasn't used en route, but was used in landing and takeoff, and that would drop uh, ballast, water ballast, to make the ship lighter. There was a gas board, so you had someone controlling the gas board, and that had valves so that you could release hydrogen lifting gas to make the ship heavier. In the cabin behind there, oh, and, and there were engine controls. There were engine telegraphs, uh, somewhat uh, similar on a ship. Behind there, there was a navigation room where you had a navigator, and that person plotted the course, and also uh, they received weather reports and plotted those on weather maps. So. Flying this took a fair number of people. These ships were not flown like an airplane. They were commanded like a ship. And so you had a crew of people, as you would on the bridge of a ship, each one with a particular function, who worked together as a team. It's not like one person 
in a cockpit with the throttle in one hand and the yoke or stick in the other. It, it, it's really like uh, sailing a ship more than flying a plane. Well, I, I've seen pictures of uh, different Zeppelins under construction and uh, the incredible lattice work to, to you know, hold all the, uh, all the, the envelopes, the, the gas envelopes in place was quite intricate. How long would it take to build a ship of this size? Did it take months, years? It took several years. Hindenburg was first laid down in uh, 1930, 1931, and was not completed until March of 1936. Part of that was financial the reaction to the Depression. Uh, they started it, but then they kind of didn't have any money. Then when the National Socialists took over, they infused a lot of government money into it. And so construction really began in earnest uh, in around 1935. But it, it, it would at least take a year or two. Um, now, during World War I, uh, when, when, of course, there was, you know, combat concerns, uh, the Zeppelin company was able to crank these out pretty quickly. Military production is often quicker than civilian production. And to some degree, the goal was uh, quantity, you know, as much as quality. But a big commercial ship like the Hindenburg or the Luxembourg uh, would have taken at least a year, maybe two. Now, Dan, the uh, the Luxembourg in this film is given the registration number LZ-130. And if, as I recall, and I think I've brought up a couple of times, that, that was actually assigned to the Graf Zeppelin II. Is that correct? It was taken. Uh, actually, it wasn't the Graf Zeppelin II. It was simply the Graf Zeppelin. There was never a two because they were planning on retiring the LZ-127 Graf Zeppelin. Ah. So they wouldn't really have operated at the same time. So, But the LZ-130 was a very, very similar copy built to the same blueprints a couple of small distinctions between Hindenburg but Hindenburg did have an almost identical sister ship LZ-130 Graf Zeppelin and that number of course they use on Luxembourg and right so it was the second Graf Zeppelin but not Graf Zeppelin 2 yeah gotcha. they didn't didn't put the two on it just a small right. technical detail trivia now you mentioned the uh, the the sort of engine telegraphs like we would we would see on a ship was there a separate uh, was there an engineer uh closer to the engines actually sort of manually adjusting throttle positions and things in response to command from the cabin absolutely each each engine car sometimes engine pod uh, had an engine and an engineer mechanic who was on duty 24 hours a day that engine was never running without a human being standing within inches of it wow and what would happen is the officer in the control car would ring the engine telegraph to the speed that was desired. And just like you've seen in the movies about ocean liners or battleships or naval ships, in the engine, right next to the engine, there was a corresponding engine telegraph, and it would ding-ding to alert him that a new order is coming through. And then a needle would move, and it would point to the speed that was required. And then the mechanic would manually adjust the engine for whatever speed had been ordered from the control car. So it, it's not like an airplane or, or or certainly like an automobile where you press a throttle and the engine automatically does something. Right. Uh, you give a command and then the engineer mechanically with his hand changes the, the, the throttle setting for the engine in response to the command. Yeah, it sounds very similar to to a ship, like, you know, that you send send commands to the engine room and they do all the, the adjustments. Exactly. Same thing. And very quickly, before we leave the topic of engines, uh, you know, they were using differential power for maneuvering and everything, of course, right? So for tight turns and things like that. So 
the uh, were there four separate uh, telegraphs in the control cabin in the cockpit? There so were speak? indeed. Okay. Each each engine could be operated independently. The Hindenburg and, and this sister ship here, in the, the Luxembourg, were obvious uh, generational designs of a Zeppelin. What improvements did the Hindenburg class of Zeppelin bring uh, bring to the line, like, like technological improvements? The biggest improvement was probably size. It was very, very much larger than what came before. And so the efficiency of a lighter-than-air craft often depends purely on size. The more lifting gas, the more you can lift. And so the passenger capacity, the carrying capacity, the range, because range is a function of how much fuel you can carry and fuel is heavy. So all of those attributes increase when you increase the size of the ship itself. And Hindenburg was just significantly larger than its predecessor or or any of its predecessors. So that was probably the biggest single difference. But there were were other mechanical changes. It had one of the first autopilots uh, of any aircraft. Hmm. Um, It had a number of interesting technical innovations, uh, but mostly it was just a lot bigger could fly farther and carry a lot more. The the Zeppelins at this point in history, here in 1938, uh, you know, about 18 months, roughly 15 months after the Hindenburg disaster in May of 37. Um, these, you know, we look at them in hindsight and we see the the big red emblem on the, the tail with the, the swastika and things. And we tend to think of them as, as, uh, as military, but these were not, these were, these were still effectively airliners, correct? Correct. They were airliners. Um, the world's first uh, intercontinental airliner was a Zeppelin. The first, uh, the first airline airliner that carried passengers on a regular schedule across an ocean from one continent to another was a Zeppelin. And these were civilian commercial ships. The Germans actually created a company called the, the DZR, the Deutsche Zeppelin Reiterei, which was an airline. And that airline existed to operate these airships. Of course, the government involvement during the NS time was, was well, the government was involved in sure. everything in Germany during that time. And so there were certainly uh, lots of Luftwaffe involvement and military overlap, and everything had a potential military application. They sent, for example, Luftwaffe observers to learn about navigation and signals and communications and things like that. So there was some integration, some cooperation between the military and civil authorities. But at their heart, these were commercial airliners. How do you think, uh, just subjectively, how do you think they did on things like the the uniforms and the cap insignia and stuff like that? Does that look reasonable to you? Oh, they, they, de- they definitely capture the, the concept. I, it's, it's not spot on. They take a little license. But then again, the whole thing is they take a lot of license in the movie, which is appropriate for a sure. film like this. It's an adventure story. But it was basically the same. These were all modeled on naval uniforms. The the kind of the aesthetic was modeled after the Navy, which is what the American airships did as well. Because these things were a lot more like ships than they were like planes. By the uh, by, the end of Hindenburg's career, it had made something like, was it like some, somewhere around 60 transatlantic crossings, you know, Graf Zeppelin before that certainly had uh, um, a, a number of, of sort of high-profile visits, like the uh, trip to the Chicago uh, World's Fair in 1933. Um, can you step us through sort of quickly, like, what uh, 
what was a flight like, you know, compared to a, especially compared to a modern airline uh, trip, other than it took a lot longer. If, if I'm going to go from, you know, Friedrichshafen to, to Lakehurst or something like this, what kind of a trip am I going to have on one of these airships? Well, it was relaxing. It was pleasant. Um, you have to compare it to the alternative technology of the day. If you wanted to go from Germany or anywhere in Europe to the United States, the only other way to go was by ship. And the fastest ship crossed in five to six days. And the biggest issue was you were likely to spend a lot of that time seasick. Uh, so you, unless you were very lucky and had an unusually smooth crossing, you were likely to lose your lunch at one point during this, this crossing. A lot of people were terrified. The, the idea of having to cross the Atlantic was, was just terrifying to people because they were terrified about getting sick and many people did get sick. Probably the biggest secret weapon that Zeppelins had was that no one ever got seasick. And, and, and if you're imagining two to three to four to maybe a full five days of just green around the gills misery versus two to two and a half days of drinking wine, you know, eating food and never feeling queasy, that, that's just a huge advantage. The obvious advantage was speed. You could cross the Atlantic twice as fast. But the secret weapon was comfort. It was comfortable. It wasn't comfortable because it was big. Obviously, the quarters were a lot smaller than an ocean liner. The cabins were smaller. The public areas were smaller. It wasn't really luxury in the sense of grand rooms, but it was certainly luxury in the sense of comfort and that you didn't have to worry about losing your lunch. And, and that would have been a huge advantage to people thinking about crossing the Atlantic at the time. And uh, how many people could make that crossing? Was that somewhere around 80? Am I close there? Uh, when Hindenburg was first built, it had cabins or had berths for 50. 50. Okay. When it became obvious that they were not going to get any helium from the Americans, they expanded that and, and they added berths so that when it finally, during the 1937 season and when it crashed, it had uh, sleeping berths for 72 passengers. That's uh, similar to the number of people that showed up for the movies by minutes Chicago. We could have hosted an entire conference up in a dirigible. And cross the Atlantic. Atlantic. (laughs) And nobody gets seasick. That's great. But I bet the operating expenses would have been a little higher than what y'all did. I just have a feeling. What would a a ticket go for back then? I mean, in $1930, how... How would that? Like, uh, it was four hundred. It was four hundred dollars uh, each way in nineteen thirty six. Four hundred and fifty each way in nineteen thirty seven. You know, conversion is tough because there are fifteen different ways to convert right. old dollars to new dollars. But but it was expensive. It was basically the same cost as crossing the Atlantic first class on a ship like the Queen Mary or the Normandy. So if you could afford a first class cabin on the Queen Mary, you could afford to cross on Hindenburg. Now, not many people could afford either, but it was roughly in the same category. And that would be roughly uh, somewhere in the ballpark of the price of a new car uh, of the era, something like that. So not yeah, necessarily exactly. something that, uh, you know, sort of a, an average middle class family could afford to do. But uh, oh, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, you probably weren't uh, weren't welcome. Is it... Uh, it's probably competitive to Concord if uh, you sure. think about it. And, and in terms yeah. of, and, and when I've seen people attempt to convert $36 to modern day dollars, you roughly get a ticket price that's kind of similar to what Concord charged uh, when it was operating. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think as, as Hal said, uh, being able to compare what you'd need, what you, what else you could buy with that, right? Yeah, about where where it's at, and just try and imagine: Do you want to get a car? Do you want to just go on a, on a Zeppelin? <laughs> yeah, sure. um, I know which I'd pick, but uh, I've never been very practical. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I, yeah, we'll be we'll be walking to work. Exactly. Uh, 
I just want to expand this outward a little bit more. A, a lot of places that uh, having uh, Beaux Arts style uh, buildings in uh, in a lot of downtown areas, uh, a lot of people point to different towers and masts and say that used to, that was actually designed as a mooring mast for zeppelins. How how many places do you know of uh, in the U.S. were planning on having regular Zeppelin work? I, I, I know of at least in Chicago. I know the Empire State Building was once considered as a mooring. The, the, the tower was going to be a mooring mast. Uh, Providence, Rhode Island has a has a building that actually has a, a, a waiting room for Zeppelins in, in their largest uh, towered building. Was that a frequent part of uh, metropolitan areas during well, the 20s? Well, if you ask how many buildings actually expected to be landing docks for zeppelins, the actual answer is zero <laughs> because no building was ever designed to actually do this. Um, it was pretty much a publicity stunt. There's a building in, I believe it's Birmingham, Alabama, which has this spindly little tower, which which a zeppelin, if it moored to this spindly little tower, the slightest gust of wind uh, would just rip this tower right off the building. And of course, it's hard to imagine anybody really, I mean, how much passenger traffic in the 1930s was there between Berlin and Birmingham, Alabama? <laughs> a lot of these buildings were did that as a as a publicity stunt everybody wanted to be associated with zeppelins zeppelins were the future uh they could never have landed these buildings even the one at the empire state building it was just had been completely impractical to ever attempt to dock a zeppelin at this uh, at a building like that and they never made any attempt to coordinate with the germans to say hey if we want to dock your zeppelin what size fitting should we have what are the technical requirements they, they never did any of the work you, you would have needed to do if you actually wanted one of these to land the goal was to associate a building or a company or a town with the future. And, and you know, the Rocketeer is really all about futurism. I mean, that, that's the yeah. dream sort of of the movie. And it was it was a dream of the time. It, it was the future, how bright and wonderful and cool. Look what we can do. Look what science and technology can do for us. Look at these amazing things. Look how wonderful the future will be. And so if you wanted to be associated with that sense of wonder of the future, in the 1930s, a Zeppelin was where it's at. So everyone wanted to associate themselves somehow with this just wonderful miracle concept yeah it i mean if you look at the the x the cirrus x3 jetpack it looks like two zeppelins tied to his back <laughs> or two vacuum yes cleaners. exactly that's true yeah uh, it always comes back to the vacuum cleaners doesn't it oh gosh also, just to just to satisfy my, my curiosity, were the windows on uh, on Zeppelins made out of uh, easily broken glass, or what, what were, do you know if they were made out of like Perspex or? What? It, it was a sort of an early version of um, uh, the same stuff that you well, use for airplane, airplane like a, windows. a plexiglass uh, or, or, loose side, or like yes, a plexiglass. It was a sort of an early version right. of plexiglass. Uh, so they were not glass. Um, yeah, you weren't gonna you weren't gonna uh, crack them and fly out the window with the uh, the first time some uh, woman steps on you on your shoe in her right. high heels. So uh, okay. no, yeah. they wouldn't shatter like that. Okay. No. And here's another arcane uh, question. So uh, so Jim, I'll see your glass question and raise you to the floor. <laughs> oh, um, gosh, what, yeah. what, the uh, in a couple of scenes in this minute, we're looking right down at the floor, and it's uh, to me, it's a little bit reminiscent of something like teak decking on an ocean liner. But uh, what would that flooring have been? The flooring in the control car would have uh, it, it was it was basically aluminum okay. sheets um, with some with overgirders and stiffeners. There was very little, very little wood. Um, wood sure. is heavy. Wood doesn't have a lot of advantages. Um, aluminum and duralumin are, are, are light and strong, so wood isn't something that was really 
used a lot. And it's, I'm not 100% convinced it is wood, just the coloring that we see in this minute looking down. It's sort of suggested of wood, but it could be, it could be almost anything. Pergo? Yeah. <laughs> it's probably linoleum, right, yeah. Jim? Yeah. Yeah, it could, could be. Um, one of the other things that in every, I mean, you, you must be tired uh, seeing on every airship movie that, that there, there's the constant threat of fire and exploding, uh, exploding Zeppelins. Um, Yet there were places to smoke and things like that. How was smoking handled on on a zeppelin? Very carefully. <laughs> but I'm um, <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, and the risk for smoking was primarily not that the hydrogen would really get into because hydrogen goes up, right? You're smoking yeah. below it. It's hydrogen rises. The risk, the, the main risk of smoking is that you ignite something else. You start a fire. You, you smoke in bed and you, and you, you, you set the, uh, the bedding on fire or, you know, you set a curtain on fire or you set the, the walls. A lot of these rooms had fabric or silk walls. And so if you were careless with smoking material, you could start a fire and then you were really in trouble. And the Hindenburg had a smoking room that they widely advertised was pressurized. Uh, it had positive pressure in it so that nothing could leak in. Uh, air could only leak out, but no hydrogen could leak in. To s- and they had a very elaborate pressure door that you had to walk through. To some degree, that was a bit of a publicity ruse to sort of reassure people. Uh, it was a little bit of security theater. The main thing, the, the main protection f- for smoking was because you were smoking below the hydrogen. As long as you didn't light anything on fire, no hydrogen was going to come down and touch the tip of your cigarette. You had to be careful about igniting things, but it wasn't, uh, I think a lot of the pressurized smoking room stuff was a little bit of, um, a little bit for show and to reassure passengers. So Jenny flying off her, uh, her flare gun in this, uh, in the, the, uh, the cab of this is well, probably that's not a, <laughs> that's not not a, a great idea, idea regardless. <laughs> No. And yeah, having a flare gun uh, in a Zeppelin is dangerous. And actually, there was a British airship, the R101, which crashed in France in 1930. And a lot of people believe that the reason it ignited, it had a very gentle landing and a very survivable gentle descent into some terrain. But then it burst into flame. And a lot of people think it was because of the flares that were kept uh, in, oh, the, in wow. the cabin. So merely having flares is is is, is, is a bad idea. Well, well, yeah, speaking of uh, of causes of of crashes, I know to this day there's still at least a at least a little bit of uh, debate. Uh, I think probably mostly among people who may not know better, but uh, about the actual cause of the Hindenburg. So, where uh, what's your take? You know, I, I, there really isn't a lot of serious debate about it. You know, scientists and historians all agree on the basics, which is that hydrogen leaked and it was ignited by an electrostatic discharge. Pretty much any other hypothesis has been has been ruled out. Where we get a little fuzzy are are the really granular details. Where was the hydrogen leaking? What started the hydrogen leak? Those are things we may not ever know. And you know, and the nature of the electrostatic discharge was it a coronal discharge? Was it brush discharge? Was it, uh, as most people hypothesize, most likely a difference in potential between the skin and the framework because the framework was grounded to the ground, but the skin was up about eighty meters in the air, sixty to eighty meters in the air. So the exact mechanism mechanism of the electrostatic discharge is a little bit unquestionable, a little bit unclear, perhaps. But the essence is really simple. Hydrogen leak, and there was an electrostatic spark, and it ignited the hydrogen, and the ship burned. The, the basics we, we've known for a long time. 
Do you think there's any uh, any credibility whatsoever to the possibility of sabotage? It's it's really hard to ever prove a negative. Sure. I don't know that anyone could ever prove that the ship wasn't sabotaged. All we know is that there were certainly no evidence of it. There was no reason to think it was sabotaged. Everything is far more consistent with the other theories, and, and there's nothing to show sabotage. On the other hand, had it been sabotaged, there likely might not have been a lot of evidence. I mean, something as simple as a flashbulb could have ignited it. So it could have been sabotaged, and there wouldn't have been much evidence left. But there's no reason to think that it was. Hmm. Uh, when we're watching as uh, as the Zeppelin leaves uh, Griffith Park here, and is, oh, I uh, love is, that scene! Isn't it great? What a beautiful. what a beautiful! I love the scene when it first approaches the observatory. By the way, but I'll, let me—I don't want to take oh, you off your path no, here. no, that's fine. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite yeah. scenes too. That's just that that ominous view of this gigantic, you know, an aluminum cloud flying over flying over the, the observatory. As we're watching them uh, flying over the lights of uh, Los Angeles, it looks like I would say they're at about maybe 800 to 1,000 feet. Is that about the right, the, the average altitude for a, where, where did they usually fly at? What was their uh, their general range in the sky? Uh, Hindenburg usually crossed the Atlantic at approximately 200 meters, roughly roughly 600 feet. You don't want to go too high because the higher you go, the gas expands. And if you go high, the gas expands, it fills the gas cells, and then you have to let it out because otherwise it'll pop the gas cells and, and actually damage the girders. And you don't want to release it. This is the stuff that keeps you in the air. So you don't want you don't want to release it. You want to save it. There's a real reason not to fly too high. And there's not much reason to fly high. You can never fly high enough to, to get around the weather. You know, there's not that much difference between 5,000 feet and 600 feet. So there's not a huge point in it, uh, not enough to justify the loss of your lifting gas. And also it gave people a wonderful view. I mean, hmm. I mean, you're flying at 200 meters, you know, five, 600 feet over the ocean. What a spectacular view. Yeah. And, and when you get to Manhattan, you'd actually, there, there'd be buildings taller than your ship at the, at the time. I mean, oh yeah. The... You were right there. You could see the people on the roofs waving at you and they could see you in the windows of the ship waving back. You were right there. You flew over, you know, the valleys of Europe. You flew over cathedrals and castles and cities. Just a spectacular, spectacular view. I mean, I've been in, you know, even today, if you fly in a, an airship, a blimp, a, a small Zeppelin, it's slow and you're slowly passing over the countryside and you're just looking down. It, it's it's an amazing way to, to fly. And uh, once again, I'm the only guy that hasn't. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes, yes if, you've, if you've never done this, raise your hand. Oh, sorry, Jim. One of these days. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have to figure that out somehow. It took me 49 years or 47 years of wanting before I uh, before I got my shot. Yeah, so. I'm going to go uh, right to Mr. Goodyear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, well, this has been fascinating. I mean, I, I, I love I, – I've I've loved zeppelins. I've loved airships since I was a I was a little kid in New Jersey and see, seeing the uh, uh, the hangar number one at, 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 in Lakehurst and uh, and seeing the, the Goodyear blimp. I was once at a uh, I was at a, a little league game and uh, I think it was was the, was one of the blimps named Mayflower. Yes, well, several yeah. blimps. Yeah. Several yeah. blimps were called Mayflower. I saw I saw the uh, the Goodyear blimp Mayflower uh, come over. <laughs> Come over left field of my little league field, <laughs> and just it. it I, I swear it was ten feet off the ground. That's how it felt. It just you well, can see. Magical. Yeah, they're just beautiful. It, it's like it's like a whale in the sky. To this day, there's no one who can not look up in the sky when an airship passes over. You just have to look at it, and and the size the, that, that scene where it first comes over the Griffith Observatory. One thing that's so magical about that 
and so great about this movie is it gives you a sense of the size. Yeah. You really get a sense of how big that was. And if you're watching this movie and you think they exaggerated, they didn't. That literally was how big it was. And that and how impressive it was when it first comes over the observatory. That's exactly what it would have what it did feel like to people who saw this thing, which was absolutely gigantic. And, and I think part of the magic and part of the thrill was just the, the sheer size. These things were many times the size of a modern-day blimp. And, and you get a sense of that in this movie. You get a sense of, wow, this thing is pretty impressive. I, I may have shared with this, uh, this with you uh, in some of our chats earlier, Dan, or and I probably mentioned it on the show, but I'll, I'll always think back to a story my dad has told his whole life since he, when he was five years old and seeing the the Macon fly overhead in uh, when he was living in Los Angeles and he was outside, you know, playing on his own and, and uh, sees this thing sort of come out of the a little bit of a misty, foggy day. And he was running door to door, banging on doors to find t- total strangers house houses, just trying to get somebody to come out and see this with him because it was so amazing. And the Macon was, uh, if I'm remembering right, was nearly as big as, uh, as Hindenburg was maybe within a hundred feet or so, something it, like that. It was nearly as big, but it wasn't as big Hindenburg and therefore Luxembourg were, sure. were even bigger. It's the largest man-made object ever to fly. Wow. Any chance of us seeing something like that again? There is a real practical application for large cargo carrying airships these days because they can go to remote locations where there's no infrastructure, no port, no railway, no highway, no airport. And they can carry either heavy or bulky things like uh, wind turbine blades and things like that or oil drilling equipment to a remote area where you don't really, there's no point in laying a railway because they only need to go there once or twice. And, And so there's a real advantage to airships doing that. And there are a number of airship projects currently being built and worked on to accomplish that. I don't think we'll ever see large passenger airships again. It'd be too expensive. And there are some drawbacks. For one thing, you'd probably have to go three or four days without taking a shower because Mm. water is really heavy. And I'm just not sure how many people are going to pay 10 or 20 or $30,000 to take a three-day cruise where they can never bathe. I would, but I'm not sure how many other people would. Uh, wow, well, sign me up. I'd, I'd love to see this again, but maybe, you know, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll see it. Dan, thank you again so much for being on the show. This is we're we're gonna watch a bit of a tragedy in the next week as we as we lose the uh, the Luxembourg. It's, it's great watching this movie with you, and, uh, and and thanks for being on our show. Thank you so much. For those of you who would like to uh, join our conversation, talk talk your uh, your Zeppelin moments, please uh, reach out to us. Roy's available on social media. You can find us online on Twitter at uh, Rocketeer Minute. Uh, you can find us at uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash Rocketeer Minute. You can find us at the great big website, rocketeerminute.com. Dan, where can people find you online? Uh, Twitter at at airships. And of course, you can go to airships.net and there's contact information. Uh, And you can also, uh, we also have a a page on Facebook. Uh, If you go to airships.net, it will have links to the at airships Twitter account and also the Facebook. And of course, anybody uh, interested in your uh, your terrific new book on Hindenburg can find that at amazon.com or... I'm sure many other places as well. I, I think we did a really good job. I'm very proud of the book, and I hope people enjoy it. Cool. Well, uh, please go to all those sites we mentioned and, uh, and definitely read the book. But we will join you here tomorrow as we watch the continuing misadventures of the uh, Luxembourg. Uh, we'll see you here tomorrow on the Rocketeer Minute. So until next time, over and out.
Gerenpjut. 